Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to this week's DevSecOps Coffee Chat. I'm Kirsten Patton, the Working Group Manager at ATARC. The purpose of this series is to provide a platform that invites change agents to share their journey of digital transformation and expand upon their passion and purpose. We want this audience to learn more about digital and IT transformation with evolving technology and a focus on DevOps. The speakers we invite on are effectively improving mission enablement and user experience. These are leaders in the federal space that inspire, educate, and promote innovation and collaboration. Grab your coffee and get ready to hear this Tuesday's inspiring story. I'm now going to hand it over to the host of this series, Jennifer Kenny Smith. Hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon. It's Jennifer Kenny Smith. I'm the Area Sales Manager with GitLab, and I'm super excited today to spend some time with Spence Spencer, USPTO, during our ATARC, ATARC coffee chat. Um, Spence today is the Director of System Configuration Delivery Automation Division. And I also have Susanna Reed, who's my senior account leader that covers this account and has some exciting information as well from her own experience working with USPTO. Hello, friends. How are we today? Happy Friday. Oh, Thank you. Happy Friday. Doing wonderful uh, up here in the basement under pandemic operating conditions as we have been for quite a few months now. What a strange time it's been. Certainly. I don't know if I see it getting any better. It keeps getting more challenging and more interesting every day. How sure. are you, Susanna? It's good to see you too. Always great to be here and really looking forward to this podcast. Yeah. So Spence, when I heard um, from ATARC that we had some time to talk to you after we had the gift of Jamie Holcomb sharing his insights and best practices, um, I sent a note to Susanna to make sure she knew you. And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, he's awesome. So <laughs> great reputation you have. And you know what it is? Um, obviously really technical and tactical, and you've, you're doing amazing things from support from automation, but Apparently, you're a really, really nice guy and a really thoughtful <laughs> and mindful, caring leader. So I want to jump in and learn a little bit more about that. Um, for the sake of the agenda of the call, I always start with asking, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, where you've been, and what brought you to USPTO. So let's start there. Okay, that's a fun place to start. Um, so I've been in the field Oh, good grief. It's coming up on 40 years now, believe it or not. Um, I started off active duty U.S. Army. Um, I was in military intelligence branch uh, in a place called Field Station Kunia, Hawaii in the early to mid 80s. Um, and at that time, it was, it was a neat time to be in the field. Um, we were, of course, that was the, the sort of downtrend of the Cold War. Um, and we were doing cool stuff even back then uh, at Kenia. We were actually putting our station on ARPANET. And this was in 1983. Uh, we had an IBM mainframe system with Prof's email. And we put the station on the ARPANET uh, on the secure side of what became CIPRANET. And um, learned a lot about IP networking and a lot of the technologies that we take for granted today. But they were a lot more complicated in the early 80s. Anyway, fast forward a few years, um, I, I lived and worked overseas for quite a time, um, spent a year at Misawa Air Base Japan working for Mantec International Corporation, and then uh, switched over to a little startup out of Gaithersburg, Maryland, in the industrial process automation field, a company called Data Measurement Corporation that uh, has been absorbed into many other corporations and I think is now part of 
um, thermo instrument. Um, anyway, uh, that was, the, and, and they took me all over the world. Um, I, I ran a field service office in Pohang, South Korea for two years, and then uh, moved to Osaka, Japan for two years, and then spent about another, I guess, three or four years traveling sort of all over the world, um, some time in Italy, some time in France and Germany, um, some time in Taiwan, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, lots of jobs in China at that time. And this was in the steel and metal processing in industries. And that was in the early to mid nineties, I guess it was, I left DMC in 1994. Um, left there to go back to, to university and wound up actually staying at University of Maryland College Park, first as a student and then as a, as a staff member uh, for 12, well, total for 18 years, for 12 years as full-time staff. And I left there in August of 2012 to come to PTO to work for a fellow by the name of Bob Sims, who's now the Office Director of Infrastructure Engineering and Operations, but at that time he was a branch chief. Um, Bob hired me to do IT operations work, which was kind of my bag at that point. And um, six and a half years working in that division. And then I took a detour, a uh, short time to work at the National Weather Service up in College Park, Maryland at NCWCP doing weather.gov and all sorts of other cool stuff like that. And then um, this opportunity at, back at PTO opened up with, with the division. I knew the division, I had worked with them when I was in operations, I knew they were good people. And I said, that's a group I wanna work with. So I competed um, for the position and I was successful. And since February of 2020, I've been in this position. So it's, I started, um, I guess almost exactly a month before the pandemic really got going. And um, a month into my time as a new supervisor with a new team, we went into total telework posture and uh, team at that time was 11 federal employees and about 20 contractors for the division. Um, our line of business is uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery, um, DevSecOps, um, uh, deliver deployment automation. Uh, we do some automated test integration, um, it, it grew out of an old product called CICM, which was continuous integration configuration management, uh, which was deployed in, I guess, around 2015 timeframe. Um, and it, it kind of got a little bit obsolete. And so we have been embarked on this renewal journey uh, in the division that is part of a much larger journey that Jamie Holcomb has, has brought us along into which is the what well, they call it the new ways of working um, product centered development versus project centered development um, product teams have operational responsibility that's a big change we used to have a great big wall in between development and operations and now those two are merging again um, rapid deployments uh, the idea the objective is to do a, a microservices architecture and have the, the product teams deploy their components on a very rapid cadence, multiple deployments per day, um, more along the lines of a Spotify or um, Pinterest 
uh, deployment model versus the typical government model. Lots of microservices, lots of little small things putting together and <clears throat> trying to replace um, some really old legacy line of business uh, systems that have been around for 15 or 20 years and are definitely showing their age. And some of those things are really hard to maintain. So that's kind of where we are today. <laughs> awesome. I, I just took a note and I feel like um, PTO is progressive modernization in regards to their transformation. You guys are forward leaning um, and have the leadership that pushes tech and for mm -hmm. all the right reasons, and then the culture shift and support there that is mindful and empowered um, from your level, from Jamie's level. Um, I mm -hmm. see a difference in PTO than some of the other agencies that are still very much lagging with modernizing from legacy to agile. Um, and mm -hmm. I want to hear more about kind of the philosophy behind that and the methodologies you're using. I'm gonna wait for Susanna to dig into that. Um, before we go there, when we talked briefly the other day, um, take me to your first month during um, <laughs> and PT, um, your learning your rhythm, your cadence, your team um, pandemic hit. Um, and I think emotionally, um, mentally, you are then moved into remote work, take your laptop right. and bring me back there. How did you show up as a leader? Huh. So that was, a, a, like I said, that was a really strange time. Um, <clears throat> we went from in the office to telework very quickly. I mean, it happened literally overnight, left the office in the afternoon and my boss kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, don't leave without your laptop today. Take all your telework gear with you. And then late that evening, we got an email from agency leadership that said, full telework, don't come into the office without permission. Um, and so we went into that and this was back in, I think it was March 18th, if I remember right. Think back to the news at that time and the things that we were seeing on CNN out of New York uh, and Europe and, and China, really. <clears throat> it was a really scary time. And um, we do, uh, I do one-on-ones with all of the federal staff weekly. And then, and then we have a, a division staff meeting once a week. And I remember some of the division staff meetings got really emotional because frankly, people were scared you know, it was, if you think back to that time, nobody really knew that much about the virus. Nobody really knew how the pandemic was going to shake out. <clears throat> there wasn't um, any real well-defined countermeasures to it. You know, the, in fact, at that time they were telling us, don't wear the mask. It's not worth doing. Um, so we all went home and hid. And we, we did a lot of you know, Zoom meetings or not really Zoom, but WebEx meetings. You know, we did remote teleconferences, which PTO has had a telework culture for a long time, but it was always only one or two days a week. And suddenly we're in this spot where we're teleworking all the time and we're not in the office at all. We're, um, everybody's scared. And at the same time, we're trying to design and build a brand new way of doing continuous integration and continuous deployment. So we had some really emotional meetings and I guess it hit me around that time I don't remember a clear moment of epiphany, but I remember that there, it, it was, I realized that people were afraid and there was this really emotional need to kind of connect with each other. And so I, I made a, I guess a decision conscious or otherwise that I needed to really focus on the needs of the folks that were doing the work to make sure that they were emotionally okay. Because, you know, if you're, 
if you're in fight or flight, you're not going to do good work. You're not going to really do any work because it's not a priority. Um, we were very fortunate in that um, our, our livelihood was never in danger, but we all felt as if our lives were in danger a little bit. So um, we helped each other get through that. And, and we, you know, whenever I speak to one of the folks on the phone, first question is, how are you doing? And, and I, I mean that seriously. And I think the folks now, they know that when I ask it, I, it's not just a polite greeting. It's I really want to know how are they doing? Are they overloaded? Are they overwhelmed? Are they emotionally in trouble? Are they physically well? Um, and we, you know, we talked in those days a lot about what the best practices were, what are the right things to do to stay well and healthy so that you can keep going. Um, family concerns. Uh, I think most of us in the division, at least on the federal side, we have children. Um, I have two kids of school age. So we went into that, you know, all of, all of the fun and games that go wrong with um, having kids that are now learning to telework. Um, and my wife is upstairs teleworking. She works for University of Maryland still. And so at one time we had four teleworkers here in the house and somehow our network stayed together. Um, <laughs> but everybody, you know, everybody was going through that at the time. And so we, we really, we got in this mode of let's take care of each other. Let's take care. Let's make sure that everybody is okay. And um, I guess I kind of come from a place um, I'm actually, I'm reading a book right now uh, called Leaders Eat First, or Leaders Eat Last, sorry. Um, and the, the, the basic principle of the book is, I guess it's an extension of servant leadership, um, but it's this notion that the, the leader's first function is to take care of their people and to make sure that they're okay uh, and well and able to work and able to function. Um, and, and this time really, uh, it, you know, it, it made it clear that this is one of those times when the leader really has to watch out for the well-being of their folks. And as a remote manager, going from leader to manager now, um, it's harder to gauge how folks are doing in terms of their workload. You know, you see a lot of output. Um, and I, I guess I'll note that one of the surprising things to me is how productive we've been in the remote work. We've actually, I think we've done a little bit more productivity wise than we were doing beforehand. Um, but you have to, you have to watch, you have to take care to, to, that you don't let people take on more than they can sustain. Everyone can work really hard for a short amount of time but what you can sustain in the long term is lower than what you can sustain in a short term. So as a manager, um, then I had to, to say, has everybody got a workload they can contend with? And they won't always tell you, even if you directly ask them, are you overloaded folks? Oh no, I've got it. It's all, it's all good. And what you don't want is you don't want that situation where somebody works until they, until they drop. Um, and so, um, you know, leave requests. Uh, I try to handle those, you know, as quickly as I can. Want to make sure everybody's got the emotional space they need. Um, Want to make sure that we're all supporting each other. Um, I wanted to make sure that everybody in the team knew that I trust them to do the right thing with their work. 
I'm very fortunate in that I have a team of experts. The folks that work in, in the division are probably some of the best in government in what they do. They're really, really sharp uh, build managers originally, but now they're turning into automation engineers. Um, and uh, I, I, I try, I consciously try to avoid micromanaging. I mean, it's, it's okay to give direction and it's okay to set strategy, but I don't like to tell people how to do what it is that they should do. And I'm fortunate in that the team that, that I work with, most of the time they know what to do. So I don't even have to tell them what to do. I tell them big picture, this is what we'd like to achieve. And then they tell me how we're going to do it. And we all go along together on the journey. And my job is to make sure they have what they need and stay out of the way and not interfere with what they're doing. You know, enjoy the ride. You know, I'm, I'm along on the journey. Um, I, I like to get involved in the technical part. I love, you know, I, I sit in our architecture meeting and I'm an active participant in that, but that's not the most important thing I do. The most important thing I do is to make sure that the folks are able to do their work. That's awesome. So much great content. And I know uh, on this call and the podcast, we typically dive into digital transformation and talk about the tech and, um, but the shift in the culture that the agencies, the enter even enterprise companies that are listening that, that you're looking for the expectation. Um, if your people aren't doing well during pandemic, they're not going to be able to support the, the drive, the intense, um, amount of work that is needed to move and to transform. Um, so Spence, just to, to pull that thread a little bit, um, you talked about yeah. making sure you're watching for burnout. Um, I know that you encourage time off um, so that they're not coming to the end of the year with you know buckets of time that they didn't use. I know you mm -hmm. took vacation this year, like bravo. So as a leader being in <laughs> You got to go take some time to be with the family, put your feet in the sand, get some vitamin K, vitamin D from the sun. Um, I think all these things are part of how we create a culture that can deliver these huge requirements. Um, so thank you for sharing that and going in a little bit personal sure. there. Um, you also mentioned the other day, uh, gratitude, please and thank you. I think David Childs, we were talking through kind of that sure. concept. Yep. Uh, so my office director is fairly new at the position. Uh, David Childs, the director of uh, office policy and organizational policy and governance, um, previously was the chief technical officer uh, for the CIO office at PTO. And David transitioned into this new role to fill a vacancy that was left when Raj Dolis departed to go to NHTSA. Um, one of the things that David brought with him was this idea that we should express gratitude to the folks that we work with for everything they do. You know, we, we're grateful. IT is a team sport. Nobody does anything by themselves. That's kind of, I, I say that a lot. <laughs> um, and, and so when you ask someone to do something and they do it and they do it well, um, it is, it costs you nothing literally to express gratitude for the job that the person did and then at the end of the year as we went through the holiday period and the new year uh, I think all of David's direct reports uh, we sort of made a group decision that we were going to express our gratitude to everybody on the team for being on the team because our the quality of our teams reflects on the the good efforts and 
abilities of the folks on the teams. Um, so, uh, you know, as as supervisors, as leaders, um, the success we have is a reflection of the effort and the success of the folks on the team. These are high quality folks. You know, they're they're great people to work with, and and we 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 all of us made a, a decision that we were going to let everybody know how we felt. Thank you for being on the team. Thank you for all of the things you've done. You know, look back on the on the accomplishments of the things that we've done this year and be grateful and be grateful that we have what we have. Be grateful that we're gainfully employed um, and healthy. You know, we're very fortunate in my own division. We, you know, knock on wood, we didn't have we haven't had any cases of COVID. Um, we've had a couple of scares, but, you know, they, it's turned out to be benign things. Um, that's something to be grateful for. And um, so we, we decided to do that. That's that's David. That was David's idea. He brought that with him. And it's neat. It fits in with the things I'm trying to do. So I really embraced it. Um, yeah, you and David and Jamie are de definitely standing out on taking a really awesome approach to how you care for your people. And mm -hmm. I love that you assume the best, that they're doing the best work and you celebrate their talent mm -hmm. and what they bring. Um, something, I just talked to a prospect um, deputy director level who wants to redesign a tool, his tool chain for DevOps. Mm -hmm. And he's ready to move forward. He's picked the tech and he asked, how do I get the people the developers, the team leads, how do I get them to actually embrace this? Hmm. And I, I want listeners to understand that you can decide the tech, sure, the tech can lead it. But Spence, you said this the other day, people will build the tech you need. They will, for example, in PTO, when they are entrusted, when they are empowered. Mm -hmm. So if that's missing from any agency's culture, that's where the riff is. That's where the pushback, the resistance sure. is. That's why there's mm -hmm. not this ecosystem of uh, alliance and alignment. Um, Brian Fox, we spoke to of 18F the other day, and he talked about creating a safe space and being mm -hmm. able to come up and be vulnerable. Like that's what you guys are creating, and that's why it's different. That's why PTO is different. That's mm -hmm. why there's this harmony and synergy. Um, mm. So thank you for that. I am sure. grateful. Um, and to that end, uh, to, to pull that just one one thing a little bit further is you also treat your vendors similarly in a very mm -hmm. respectable fashion um, as if they are a part of your team. I know that from your contractors and mm -hmm. from your, our experience from GitLab. So that makes our job really easy to support and advocate for agencies like yours. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know we want to talk about cool tech and sure. digital transformation and automation and how you do that brilliantly and seems effortlessly. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Susanna if you kind of want to walk us through what you guys are working on together um, sure. and picture and how you measure that success and all the things. Susanna? Sure. Um, it's definitely been exciting to, to hear some more of the details about some of the forward-looking, empowering culture and how that really um, flows through everything that happens at PTO and helps um, drive the success that, that your team um, is pushing towards um, moving to a more agile and iterative approach um, to mm -hmm. development and deployment. Um, I guess one thing that's very important that that's always struck out as being incredibly important about that is um, 
what PTO has designed around kind of the agile and DevSecOps new ways of working. Can you talk sure. a little bit more about, you know, the product teams and how things mm -hmm. have been aligned in a very business driven approach there at the agency? Sure. Um, so this was, uh, I guess, Jamie's innovation really to, to PTO that he brought with him as he came on board. We were um, focused around projects like much of the government. You know, we were an OMB 300 driven shop. Uh, we, we, we had projects that had budgets and we had project managers and the projects had a lifetime and a scope and all of those things that are familiar to anybody that does IT work in the government. And there's been a, in industry, there's been a shift toward product driven approach where a team is assembled um, to build and maintain and sustain a particular component that delivers business value to the to the organization, and we are embracing that. Um, we're we've moved away now from projects. Uh, we don't we don't really do projects anymore. Um, we took uh, two hundred and twenty odd what used to be called automated information systems and decomposed them into products and components. Um, and we have a, uh, each component has a product team that's responsible for developing it and sustaining it and maintaining it and, and keeping it running and running well. Um, and I, I'm fortunate in that I have uh, three product teams in the division that maintain the three components that make up the continuous integration, continuous deployment uh, infrastructure. We're part of the enterprise infrastructure product line, uh, which reports to Bob Sims under a product called Delivery Services, which is really the automation um, house, if you will, uh, within uh, the CIO organization. And um, we are in the midst of launching agile teams and taking employees. And um, it's not really a reorg because folks aren't moving on the org chart so much, but we're organ we're we're putting teams together that are responsible for specific business functions and the systems that support those functions. Um, so those those 200 and some AISs are going to turn into 200 and some product teams. Product team will have you know a, a product owner, uh, just like Agile doctrine says it should. We'll have tech leads, we'll have architects, we'll have developers, we'll have operations people, we'll have test engineers, all embedded within the team, drawn from other divisions. You know, so you take you take a group of people that, you know, a product team is supposed to be eight to ten people. So you're pulling human resources from possibly seven or eight different divisions or branches within a government organization, mix of contract and federal. Um, and putting them together and saying, you're responsible for this component end to end, this entire life cycle. Um, and you stick with it from concept to decommissioning. That's, that's the thinking. Um, some folks will join the team and will have a shorter tenure on the team. If you think like a developer, as a product reaches maturity, the development effort kind of tops out. So you don't have the need for developers and test engineers so much. So those folks would be retasked into other areas, but there's, uh, you know, the, the product owner responsibilities will, will stay around 
and operations and sustainment folks are needed through the entire life of the product. So that's the concept. Um, and Jamie launched this, I guess, about, oh, it began about two years ago, um, and and we're, we're well into it now. Um, teams are launching. We have five teams in the launch phase right now. There's another, I think, 10 or 11 right behind those. Um, and and we're and we're bringing them on board, you know, at, at the rate that they that they come to us. Um, one of the things that we are requiring for a team to go agile is they they must have automation for delivery. Um, that old way of manually putting an application bundle on a server and restarting it with a system admin sort of thing, we're not going to permit that anymore we're requiring teams to use automated pipelines to deploy their product into the infrastructure. The infrastructure may be on premise in our data center, or increasingly it's going to the cloud computing resources. So we've, we've become uh, really, you know, embraced uh, Amazon web services in particular. Um, we're doing all of our new development is done in, in cloud now. Uh, and, Jamie actually wants to decommission our lab entirely. He wants to get out of the lab business. He really wants to get out entirely out of the data center business. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the folks' responsibilities are changing. And, you know, this is part of that safety thing that we talked about earlier. Um, when you change somebody's operating environment or their work environment, they get scared and they think, is there gonna be a place for me in this new way of working? And, you know, the, the overall headcount at least for the time being, looks like it's going to be fairly constant. We don't we don't see any reduction. Um, there's you know contract turnover like always, uh, but the, in terms of federal employees, uh, we we don't expect any any real change in headcount. Um, we are we we have a lot of technical debt and legacy. Uh, you know, cruft, whatever you want to call it, that we've brought with us over the years. We want to we want to move away from that. We want our systems to be stable and resilient, work well. Um, you know, not have uh, catastrophic multi-day outages. Um, one of the things about PTO is that we are a fee-funded organization. Our budget is appropriated but it, it is not tax money. Um, our budget comes entirely from the fees we collect. So essentially what that means is that if our business systems stop functioning, our business processes stop functioning. And if our business processes stop functioning, we're not bringing in money. And in a living organization, when you stop processes, that's death. Literally, I mean, that's what the definition of death is for life. For a, for a living being is the stoppage of processes. So now these IT assets uh, and, and systems become literally life and death for the agency. Um, that's, that's, the re, that's the importance of what we do. Uh, and, and everybody knows that, you know, there's, there's a dollar figure uh, for every hour that we don't have access to our, our business systems. There's a dollar figure for how much it costs us. And uh, we have our eye on that. And so it's, it's easy to say, what is an outage cost? We can do that math. And so then, you know, the cost benefit of what it takes to get resilient is, is clear. Um, resiliency isn't free, but the net benefit is that it is a net positive. If you have resilient systems that don't fall over, um, you know, your, your, 
your total cost is lower because you don't have that lost time. I really appreciate that. And you, you touched on so many really important things in, <laughs> in what sure. you were talking about there. And I think one goes back to something that, that Jennifer had asked you about before um, when she's talking about other um, you know, directors that she's talked to who are really concerned mm -hmm. about how they're going to get the um, cultural change that needs to happen mm -hmm. to, to really move towards this agile way of thinking. And I think what's important about what PTO has done is that it's the mix of both kind of the executive sponsorship and trust mm -hmm. that leadership ha is putting into these product teams, but it's also the ways that those have been organized um, to really give the autonomy and really push those people to embrace what they're mm -hmm. building with their pipelines to move this forward. And I think that there's sure. a lot that other leaders can learn from sort of this forward-looking approach that PTO has taken if they're really concerned around sort of that, that mm -hmm. um, how, how to get that agile culture internally. Sure. Yeah, um, it, you, you hit it, you know, it is, it, there is a, an enormous trust element here. We, um, the senior leadership in the agency from the business side, from the patents and trademark side, they, when they speak in terms of IT spend, they don't call it spend, they call it IT investment. And they trust us, they put us in a fiduciary trust re relationship with them to take that financial resource and to turn it into business value. And that trust has to go all the way down through the organization. It goes, you know, from uh, agency senior leadership through the CIO leadership, senior leadership, down to my level and into the branches and down to the individuals and even into the contract teams that they trust us to do the right thing. And the entire, the entire hierarchy, um, there's that, that knowledge that, that we're trusted, that knowledge that we're expected to do the right thing. And everybody wants to do the right thing. And that's important. So it's a self, self-organizing, uh, autonomous, uh, results-driven team, and and that's a that's really cool in government. I mean, that you don't see that. There are just some agencies that have a deep sense of mission like that. When I was in the intelligence field, intelligence, it's real obvious what your mission is. You know, it's literally life and death. Um, even in peacetime, even in the Cold War, it was life and death. You know, we. When I was in Hawaii, we had the 25th Division right across the road from us. And we said, if they're in garrison, that means we're doing our job. It means they're not out in the field fighting somebody. And that means that in the intelligence world, we're doing our job. We're giving the national leadership the, the things that they need to, to prevent the war. PTO, it's a little different. It's not life and death. It's dollars and cents. It's hard-nosed business. Um, and and the, the the agency operates like a business. Every, you know, It's like I said, it's an... It's it's seen, IT is seen as an investment. It's seen as something that enhances examiner productivity. Uh, we look at throughput. We call it production. You know, it's 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 almost like an assembly line. Not exactly an assembly line because it's knowledge work, the examination. But there's that continuous tracking of volume. You know, it's it's how do we how do we keep the cases moving through the pipeline through the through the examination pipeline? How do we take an a a, a application? Of a, of a patent or a trademark and turn it into a first office action and then turn it into a final disposition, whether it's a granted patent or, or a registered trademark or uh, a rejected uh, case. 
That's perfect. I think that you've touched both on sort of what the, the risk is to USPTO if you aren't successful in accelerating kind of this change that needs to occur. Um, and, you know, if the systems are down, you cannot be collecting your fees and you cannot be serving, you know, the economy, uh, you sure. know, that, that needs to happen from the, the patent and trademarks that, that you issue. Um, but you also are talking a little bit about how you're measuring sort of the impact of this cultural change through some of these processes. Mm -hmm. Can you dig a little bit more into that and sort of how you're measuring this impact and what it can bring for um, USPTO? Sure. Um, so I guess fundamentally from a development perspective, uh, one of the things that we look at, probably the most important measure that we look at is what they sometimes call time to value. So it's the time from concept to running production, right? So you come up with an idea for a feature or a new system. How long does it take to conceptualize and, and uh, fully uh, design and architect that, that, that new feature, bring it all the way through development, testing, deployment, and out to production? How long is that? That's a really good measure um, because it, it shows how quickly the agency gets a result for its dollar. You know, they drop a dollar on the table, how long before they see the results of that dollar? That's, that's really, you know, really hard-nosed metric. Um, we also look at, you know, our, I mean, we, we track deeply our, our infrastructure spend, you know, and that's probably one of the most painful places for any large IT organization, infrastructure costs are huge. You know, it, it's, uh, you have to renew things. You have to, you have to uh, keep software current. You know, you have to patch uh, operating systems. You have to buy new hardware, all of that. And um, one of the reasons that we're embracing the cloud is that typically we've had this big lab infrastructure that we've had to keep for the development team. And it's expensive, and I, I don't know the exact dollar figure, but I know it's you know it's, it's a lot of money, it's a really lot of money, even for the for a government agency. And Jamie said, "Why are we spending money on this lab? Because most of the time, those machines are just sitting there idling, uh, and we we might not be writing code on every system all the time. Um, so if a system is just in sustainment, you still got a lab side." Uh, that isn't really delivering any business value. So Jamie said, look, let's take that to the cloud and we'll shut it off when we don't need it. And when we put something into development, we spin up those lab instances and we do all the development activities and test activities and we deploy it into production. And once we're satisfied with it, we idle down those lab instances again and we're not paying for them. We're not paying to run them. The The tenancy cost is 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 saved at that point. So it's a that's a, you know, a hard-nosed benefit. It's a cost thing. Um, we look at, in terms of team metrics, we look at how quickly teams deploy. You know, what's their what's their deployment cadence? Do they deploy once a month? Do they deploy once a week? Once a day? Once an hour? Many times an hour. More is better. Um, there's a an adage in the the IT field that the bigger a project is. The bigger an effort is, I don't, I don't want to say project anymore. The bigger an effort is, the more likely it is to fail. And the number that I remember seeing, and this was probably five or six years ago, they said that the 50% failure rate was of projects that were 18 months duration. So in other words, 
anything that's shorter than 18 months on average is going to have a better than even chance of succeeding. Anything that's longer than 18 months is going to have a less than even chance of succeeding. So the moral of the story there is take smaller bites. And if you can shorten those efforts from 18 months to a couple of hours, you know, automatically your success rate goes up and your more importantly, your deployment risk goes down. Um, if you have the ability to redeploy quickly, if you deploy something into production and it's a lemon, it's really easy to step back and you don't lose that much when you step back. If all you delivered when you did your latest deployment was one tiny little business feature and it turns out to be a dud when you put it into production, when you roll back that one micro version, all you lose is that little tiny bit of work that you did. You don't go back a major feature, you know, uh, you don't you don't lose big chunks of your functionality. You just lose that little bit of work that you did this morning. So that's worth noting too. Um, we look at deployment success rate. In other words, uh, the deployment itself, the physical act of putting the code into production or putting it into the environment. How often does that fail? And that number better be really, really low. We don't like failed deployments. Um, that's why we do automation. Automation automatically drives consistency. Um, you know, you go back to the classics in the field uh, in production, uh, W. Edwards Deming. Uh, the book is actually right here in front of me. Deming's Road to Continual Improvement. Um, one of the things that Deming says is that if you wanna be successful, the first thing you have to do is learn to be consistent. And a very good way to learn to be consistent is to never send a human to do the job of a robot. And, you know, Deming was the man, uh, for those that aren't familiar with his work, Deming was the, was the man that made the trains in Japan run on time. Uh, Deming taught Toyota everything they know about quality. Deming invented quality control back in the 30s with a man by the name of uh, W, no, sorry, uh, Shewart. Um, and it was all based on statistical control. So you looked at how consistent your product was, how close to the specification were you, right? Now we don't we don't have, with software, we don't have, well, we sort of do, we have performance specs, but we, we don't deliver the same thing over and over again. I don't make 10,000 widgets every day. I make a product and I only ever do that work once. So it's really hard to, 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 to think in terms of volume like, like Deming did, but everything that we learned about automation is still true. If the deployments are something that's done over and over again. If we automate them, we automatically get consistency and we can look at the deployment failures and we can say, well, what happened? And then we can redesign the automation such that the deployment failure doesn't happen again. You know, you don't have somebody that mistype a password, type a command and drop a file in the wrong directory, that sort of thing. Just it doesn't happen because the robot doesn't make that kind of a mistake. So you get that, I'll say, for free when you when you automate. And it's empowering because we now take people out of that routine repetitive work and we turn everybody in the, in the, in the, in the endeavor into a knowledge worker. So everybody becomes an expert in what they do and they don't type the commands anymore. They write the code or they develop the robot that types the commands. And all they do is they watch the robot run and if it goes wrong, they analyze it. So our jobs become a lot more analytical and a lot less rote and a lot more engaging, by the way, it's a lot of fun to do. So that's worth noting. 
That's great. I hope uh, our listeners really take a lot of those nuggets and, and see how they can make this rewarding, sure. but also what metrics they should be looking at and where they should be pushing themselves towards automation to, yep. to really achieve this in a, in a meaningful way. Frequency of deployment, I cannot overemphasize that. That is probably the best indicator of team health. If a team is delivering things into production frequently, it's almost a guarantee that that team is doing the right things. They're they're high functioning team at that point. They may make mistakes. They may have duds. They may have things that they that they deliver into production that don't exactly work right. But hey, you recover from it quickly. And the 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 wonderful thing about those quick incremental deployments is that you only introduce a single bug at a time. So it's really easy to find, identify, and fix that bug, and then redeploy. So that you know your recovery time is a lot quicker. Sure. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to uh, Jennifer and have her wrap us up. Helps if I'm not on mute. Uh, so much information. <laughs> Spence, I love the books that you're dropping on here too. We'll put that in the um, links to go mm -hmm. so people can consume that. You had mentioned um, with people, uh, people, whatever, the living being stops growing, we die. I believe sure. similar. Yep. When we stop growing, we stop reading, we stop learning. You know, mm -hmm. fragmentation. We, uh, we are end users the consumers of what we produce deserve us to be highly educated at all times. And during pandemic, there's no better time than to read and learn and grow um, so we can contribute more, so we can make a bigger impact, so we can show up as our best. Um, so thank you for those nuggets of wisdom. One last thing, um, if you could fill in the blank for me, people do better when people feel their leaders are? Trusting. Trusting. Awesome. I think it's a good foundation. I think it's probably the only foundation. We can thrive when we feel empowered and trusted and trust each other to do the right things. I am so grateful for the time. I think that all leaders need to listen to this. I think you could probably put together a masterclass on how to be a great leader. <laughs> thank <laughs> I you. I would, I would pay to learn more. <laughs> um, but thank you for allowing us to pick your brain, to share some time together great. and for teaching. Thank you. So nice to see you. Thanks for the... Thanks for the opportunity.